Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran jazz guitarist Bobby Broom. He took some time out to speak with us about his excellent new 2018 CD called Soul Fingers, produced by the great Steve Jordan. He was born and raised in New York City, but he moved on to Chicago, where he has called that home for some time. He talked about some great experiences early on with Al Haig and Sonny Rollins, and he's always been an innovator and a cat that knows how to always evolve. His career is about quality and longevity, and he talked about that with us along with a great many things. So please get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. So Bobby, thank you for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz. It's an honor, man. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate it. And i got to tell you, Soul Fingers, I've had this thing in my CD chamber in the car for the last three days. I can't stop. It's Oh, it's per- it's it, it's a beautiful album, and on this particular day in Kansas City, it's a little bit cold and rainy, and I'm mm-hmm. driving around on purpose to listen to this. Uh, <laughs> thank you. The sun is shining. So, talk to me about this album. You got a great lineup. It sounds like you had a lot of fun making this album. Yeah, yeah, I really did. Um, you know, Steve Jordan produced it. Once I I. I found out that that was going to happen, you know, I knew everything was going to be great. You know, I had high hopes for the music turning out just right. The guys and I, Ben Patterson and Kobe Watkins, started off together in 2014 uh, as the opening act for Steely Dan. And, of course, Kobe and I have played together for, I don't know, 15 years at least. And... Ben just came aboard at that time in 2014. So, you know, I didn't really have, I didn't have any experience with him um, personally, musically, you know. But we gelled pretty quickly to uh, a great degree. So when uh, the following summer came around and uh, I started thinking about recording, uh, that was the group that, that I wanted to use, you know. So each successive album, you've got a deep catalog. How do you go with, do, do you view your each album as an evolution? Is it kind of an imprint in time for you? How do you do that? A little bit of both. I mean, I, I don't think about it as an evolution necessarily, uh, other than the fact that I don't want to repeat myself if possible. You know, I don't want to do uh, the same thing over and over again. Uh, I've done that in a certain uh, to a certain extent with the groups that I uh, assemble. I'm pretty loyal as far as that's concerned, and um, e- either uh, loyal or you know persistent, however you want to look at it. You know, I, I I keep the same personnel, therefore the musical dynamics. Uh, remain uh, but other than that you know choice of material choice of theme and that kind of thing that's where I try to to uh, uh, to mix things up or to keep things moving along and, and uh, make everything every uh, offering as far as records a little bit different so you were born and raised in New York. You're in Chicago now. And, and I want to know this. How did you pick up the guitar and how did jazz capture you? Well, uh, I kind of liked jazz in a way before I was even really aware of what it was. You know, my parents, nobody was really musical per se in my household. I'm an only child. My folks listened to music. They listened to radio and had a fairly wide-ranging record collection. You know, I remember hearing 
Frank Sinatra, Arthur Price Sock. There was soul music going on. Uh, and I was very into pop radio. When I was about 10, though, uh, my dad came home from the barbershop one night with a stack of records that he had bought, one of which was this Charles Erland Black Talk, uh, the one where he does more today than yesterday and the age of Aquarius, which were pop songs, you know, of the time uh, in the 70s. So that probably attracted me to, to wanting to play this record. And once I did, I was, I was hooked. You know, I played it nonstop on a daily basis. Maybe I had started playing the guitar by then, um, but I, I don't, I don't believe so. If I, if I had, I had just, just started. But I fell in love with this record and, um, didn't even know it was dead. I started playing the guitar when I was 12, uh, just uh, with some kind of calling, really. I don't, I can't cite one particular incident that, uh, you know, I could say was the determining thing that made me want to play the guitar. I, I can't, I've searched for that answer and I don't, I can't come up with anything. Uh, I just know I woke up one morning with this burning desire to play the guitar, and I asked my father, you know, Dad, you know, I want to play guitar. Can you get me a guitar? And so he, he bought me a, um, a, a nylon string guitar, classical style guitar. I began taking folk music lessons, you know, just strumming the basic chords and that kind of thing. And that was really all I was interested in at the time, was just, you know, strumming and singing along kind of thing. About a year later, my father was introduced to a, a gentleman named Jimmy Carter by a friend of, of his. And, you know, as this is a guy that, you know, you should take his son to for guitar lessons. He plays jazz guitar. Well, I took lessons with this guy on a weekly basis. And I loved his stories. I loved the fact that he would uh, give me pop tunes that we would play together. The first song he ever gave me was Let's Stay Together. I thought that was really cool. I liked his stories every Saturday. He had a story about a gig that he did or something. I thought he was cool. And I was really just trying to emulate him. I guess at that time I was getting introduced to some of the repertoire of jazz through him. Um, and his assignments for the week, you know, okay, next week we're going to play Watch What Happens, you know, you learn this song, learn the chords. So, you know, my whole uh, goal at that point was to learn the chords well enough to play behind Jimmy Carter, you know. <laughs> and he, he really implored me to listen to West Montgomery, but I never took him up on it. And then it was just something on the radio I heard at one point, it was probably about 15 and uh, Grover Washington Jr. was a, a, a hit uh, with um, Mr. Magic, and Herbie Hancock had a hit with uh, Headhunters, with the, the Chameleon. And those were the two things that drove me towards jazz and trying to find out what jazz was about on the guitar. So let me ask you this. At a young age, around 16, you're playing with Al Haig. That had to be a huge learning experience at that point in your life. Most definitely. Most definitely. Uh, yeah, a dream. And by that point, I had made the conversion to jazz um, uh, from my quest to find out about what jazz guitar was and who was doing it. 
the way that Grover Washington and Herbie Hancock were. The answer I got from the guy at the record store was George Benson. He gave me a record, uh, and that changed my life. Um, so from there, I did research, began researching, and, and learned about Wes Montgomery and bought a bunch of his records and just, you know, learned about the masters of the music, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, you know how the story goes. And, and I just followed the dots. And every week, I got my little allowance, 5 or $10. I could buy a record or two, and that's what I did. Uh, so by the time I met Al Haig, and, you know, he asked me to, to come sit in with him. I knew exactly who he was from the Charlie Parker records, you know. So I thought it was incredible to to have the opportunity to play with someone that played with Charlie Parker. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of that lineage and that learning curve, you spent some quality time with Mr. Sonny Rollins, and that had to be enormous for you, not only for as a musician but as a human being. Yeah, you know, again, uh, that was around the same time I was 16, I, I guess, when I met Sonny. I knew about him. I knew, you know, that he was one of the, the, the great figures in, in, uh, in music. I looked at it like every other musical experience I had had and was having at the time. It was just uh, 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 I was thankful and grateful to be involved. I didn't look to these situations with any kind of fear or trepidation or anything like that. It was just, I was just grateful to be involved, eager to be involved, and to try to contribute and to try to learn. And I, I felt that all I could do was what I could do. All I could play was what I was honestly able to play. And so that's how I looked at it, you know, call it naivete or whatever. But um, I wasn't nervous or, you know, anything like that. It was just, a, a, as you say, a, a great learning experience, both um, musically, of course, and, um, and personally. You are a testament to longevity in your career up to this point. I'm wondering, <laughs> with, with a lot of the legends and luminaries you've had the chance to play with in your life. What did they teach you about longevity and keeping going and, and making your career go as, as strong and as long as it has? Well, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know if I received those lessons consciously as much as subconsciously. You know, the, the, the impetus or the wherewithal to keep going um, in spite of how things appear on the surface uh, on any given day or uh, in a, any given moment for me, uh, the impetus and the, the inspiration to continue on must come from my experiences with these greats. Um, it must make me feel that I have something to offer. The fact that these guys uh, basically endorsed me as a musician, as a guitar player. So if nothing else, those experiences are fuel for me uh, to keep going. You understand what I mean? Totally. 100% understand. Yeah. So... You are clearly an ambassador for the great city of Chicago, and I want to know from you, what do you love the most about Chicago? As a native New Yorker, it's really 
still an interesting thought that I'm uh, that I live uh, outside of New York. I mean, you know, when you grow up in in New York and Manhattan in particular, you think that the world revolves around you. You know, I was talking about this with someone recently. You know, you think you you're never going to live anywhere else, and uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. One of the benefits I found. Uh, in hindsight from living in Chicago and not New York as a musician and especially as a, a musician in my formative years of my 20s, mid-20s, mid into my 30s, I was able to concentrate and focus on my own particular idea about music, about my personal output, what I wanted to sound like, who I wanted to be, without the, uh, the kind of influence of the scene, the immediate New York scene, and and what that implores musicians to do, who they need to emulate to be on the cutting edge, and that kind of thing. I, I, I wasn't in the middle of that uh, during my formative years. Um, so... I just it, it just allowed me to focus on myself. So to answer your question, one of the things that I like about this town, as far as the music scene in general, is that it allows for originality. Speaking of originality, you you have had a, a long career of originality. A lot of great things happened on your jazz journey. Are you happy with your place in your career right now? You know, I would be uh, ungrateful to say no, <laughs> because I've had experiences that, as I said earlier, that, you know, are, are hard for me to fathom. Uh, the only thing is that they actually happen, you know, so they still seem, as far as ideas, they're kind of dreamlike, you know. There was a point, after I became enamored with jazz music, it must have been about 16 or so. Um, and it was before my opportunities with Sonny and with Al Haig and people of that ilk. Uh, I remember pining at some point there because I felt like, wow, I had this epiphany that this is what I want to do with my life. I want to be involved in jazz music, and I want to contribute, and I want to be uh, associated in a certain way with a certain group of people, a certain line of people. And I knew what that was. It was, you know, the guys that were on these records that I was collecting and gathering. And and I just had this epiphany, there's no way that I'm going to be able to do that because these records are from the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and it's not happening like this anymore. And you missed out. You were born too late. Wow, what a what a sad thing that was for me. So my answer to that was, you know what, I don't care. I love this music so much. I just want to learn how to play. I just want to be considered uh, a, a member of this club, if you will. And that was the only thing that mattered. I, I don't care if, if I missed it, I'm going to practice, and I, I just want to learn how to play this. So... To answer your question, I can't 
be anything but grateful and happy. Of course, yeah, I'd like the, the details to be different. But, you know, if those things are meant to happen, they, they will. I mean, my goodness, it's not like I have control over, you know, over the, the, um, the, the whole thing. In that way, again, I can be nothing but, uh, but grateful. Is there anything else on your radar as you move forward that you really, really want to accomplish or see get done in your career? You know, I can't pinpoint any one thing. You know, I, I, I there's no way that I can could even imagine, uh, have imagined rather, um, things that have happened to me. You know, uh, uh, being associated with Steely Dan, having them like me and my music, knowing who I am. You know, that kind of thing. Making this new record, playing with all of the jazz greats that I have. You know. The, those are, are dreams, but not things that I said specifically I wanted to do. You know, as my life unfolds, I can pinpoint certain things that I, you know, that I would like. You know, after I met Sonny Rollins and we played the one time, I wanted nothing more than to be a regular member of his band. So that was a, a, a goal that, developed out of my own experience, you know, so that that happens uh, in, in my life, you know, when it came time for me to make this current record and I realized that I, I wanted a producer, I thought of Steve Jordan, uh, even though it felt like a, 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 I was shooting in the dark. And, well, not in the dark because I knew what I wanted it to be, but I, I thought that, well, you know, he's too busy for, for, to do this with me, you know. But, you know, I know him. He's a, a friend of mine and, and uh, I was, um, encouraged to, to pursue it. And I did. And, and, it, and it's happened. So I'm sure there are other things that, uh, are, yeah, laying in wait, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm nothing but um, tenacious, and um, uh, I guess I'm patient, <laughs> although it doesn't feel that way sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I hear you, man. Yeah. So you spent, you've dedicated your life to the jazz craft, and I want to ask you this. Why do you love jazz? You know, I was listening to an interview um, you did recently, and... You know, I, I hear this answer from from all of us that it's it's not necessarily jazz. I mean, the jazz is of course what we call it for various reasons, you know. But I love music, and, and I've always loved music from the time I was four or five years old. I the radio was my friend, you know. I I, I kept it close by. I learned. Every nuance of every song, these songs that I'm currently playing are because of deep-rooted love of music that I carry with me from all the way back then. You know, White a Shade of Pale, Procol Harum, that was, in, it was released in 1966 or 67. I was uh, five or six years old. What do I know about that? that something in music was speaking to me. So as it turned out, I found that the way I felt most comfortable and um, the way 
that felt most compelling for me personally to express myself was through what we call jazz. And um, for that and other reasons, I have devoted my, my life to it. Uh, some of those reasons are social, political, if you will, uh, spiritual, and musical. So let me ask you this. This is my final question for you. And I, I, everyone has a perception or an idea of who they think you are, your family, your friends, your fan base, but you know yourself the best. Who do you think you are? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I think everybody's perception about that is probably a little different. And, you know, whether you're talking about individual, an individual's perception or a group, perception. So I don't know, you know, I, I get different messages from different people about who I am and uh, often it's surprising. But I'm the same person that I've always been. I'm a devoted lover of music, a devoted lover of family and friends. That's keeping it simple. You know. Cool. I like that answer, man. Bobby? Thank you for taking some time out for me and Neon Jazz. It's been an honor. And then I appreciate it. I really, uh, I really appreciate what you do and the way you, the way you do it. I listened to your your interview with Steve Coleman, and I was really impressed. And I, I felt honored that you asked me to do this. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Chicago, New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Bobby for his cool, his time, and his legendary music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.